Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is Life Over Coffee, and I am Rick Thomas. As always, I am so grateful that you are here. Today, for those of you listening to the podcast, I am sporting my Tallahassee shirt. I had the opportunity to speak in Tallahassee, Florida, Oh, a year or so ago, and it was a wonderful experience, and I actually like getting a t-shirt wherever I go and speak. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I did a podcast recently, and I shared how uh, there were a couple of folks who responded to uh, some videos on YouTube. Uh, One was someone from Klamath Falls. I was wearing a Klamath Falls t-shirt, and they acknowledged that. Praise God for Klamath Falls. I've enjoyed the two times that I've been there. And then someone else uh, said something about another t-shirt, and I can't remember right offhand uh, which uh, uh, state that was, but uh, what they actually said was, I I like the t-shirt, but I didn't enjoy the message. And so I thought what I would do is just represent some of the places where I have been, and I would wear a t-shirt since people respond more to the t-shirt that I wear than the content that I create. Uh, So I'm just going to start wearing t-shirts so I can get more likes and more comments on YouTube. I was talking to Lucia about this and she said, well, you know, uh, why don't you just start branding? And so if you have a a ministry or something that you would like for me to brand, give me a t-shirt, give me a nice expensive t-shirt, a nice expensive jacket with your logo on it. Now, if it's not illegal, uh, I would be glad to, or or let's say alcohol or something like that. Uh, Other than that, I would be glad to maybe wear it and just give you some props because people like what I wear more than uh, what I say. And so if you want to send me a t-shirt or a nice jacket or maybe a nice cool cap. It really has to be cool. Uh, You're welcome to do that. And if I really like it, uh, I will wear it. And if I don't like it, I'll just send it back to you. Uh, But anyway, this one's from Tallahassee, Florida. So uh, good for you all. Uh, you You good folks down in Tallahassee. Praise God for you. And I think that we're on the docket to go back. Uh, to Tallahassee in about a year, and so I'm looking forward to that. By the way, uh, if you want me to buy a t-shirt in your town, then just invite me to speak, and I would love to do that. Uh, Just contact our office, and we can make it happen, all right? And so uh, what I want to talk about here is um, when God doesn't come through for you. Because we hear, I mean, we know from Scripture that God will give you the desires of your heart, Uh, But then, well, we have to talk about the other side of that coin, and there are some times where God doesn't come through for you, and those are the things that we really need to talk about because that has been your experience. It most definitely has been mine. I mean, everybody knows that God comes through for us when we get what we want. We we praise God, and we thank Him for answering prayers and, and meeting our desires. But did you know that he comes through for us when he gives us things that we do not appreciate or do not appreciate initially? 
What did the Lord do for you that you did not understand at the time, but you see his wisdom in providing that thing now? That's what I'm talking about. And I would imagine that all of you have stories like that. He gave you the desires of your heart, and then he either withheld the desires of your heart, he said no, or he gave you something that you did not anticipate, and you see both of those things as wisdom now, even though you did not appreciate them at the time. This truth troubles our souls and challenges our perspectives about the Lord. Like a loving parent, the Lord knows what is best, and sometimes He makes decisions that do not appear to be for us. And then as the child matures, he returns home to tell the parent how he sees the benefit of the hard thing the parent did for them when he was less mature. I want to share with you a few stories from some folks who had a narrow view of God's goodness and God's provision in their lives. Let's begin with my friend Mabel. She took a shortcut to work. After arriving on the company campus, she learned of an accident on her usual route. A tractor trailer overturned. No one was hurt, but it stopped the traffic for three hours. She thanked God for directing her differently that morning. I always find a little tension in these kinds of stories because it didn't dawn on Mabel that there were several hurting souls who must process God's goodness differently at the scene of the accident or all the people who were late, three hours late for work uh, because of the accident. And so it's a two-sided coin, but do we want to say that, that God's goodness for her, well, we want to think through what about those other people? The other people are the ones that I want to talk about here. Here's another illustration. Biff received an unexpected check in the mail for $3,500. It was an IRS oversight. Biff shared with his small group how he and Mabel had prayed, asking the Lord to provide for a recent medical emergency. God came through for them. Bert and Marge just came home from a fantastic honeymoon. With stars in her eyes, Marge floated into work the following Monday. The Lord gave her exactly what she wanted, the man of her dreams. She could not have written a better script. Now these two stories, these two these stories have two things in common. One is their dreams did come true, and number two, the expected satisfaction from getting what they had hoped for, it did not disappoint them. And as they shared the kindnesses of God with their friends, the immediate and expected refrains were, the Lord was so kind to you, or God is so good to his children, or that's just like God. Sometimes Christians can robotically go into cliche speak without thinking about what they are saying or how narrow-minded their thoughts are, especially for a person in an unchangeable situation. The truck driver, the person who never gets a check in the mail, or the spouse who disdains her husband or the husband who disdains his wife. 
Those who came up short on God's generosity, they paste on their fake smiles when they hear these good stories. And they also respond with an appropriate cliche, and they quietly struggle with their actual thoughts. I have talked to many of these people in counseling over the years. A few of them come to mind right now that they are in unchangeable situations. And on the ground level, it appears that their lives will never change from the pain and suffering that they're going through now. And I've had them tell me how they hear these stories of God's goodness in people's lives, and they do try to rejoice. They go to the weddings, and they watch these people get married and happily live ever after. But their life is not like that. And so they live in this duality, this tension. Yes, God is good, but what about me? And that's why we need to talk about an expanded idea of God's goodness and how God works in our lives even when he does not come through for us. You see, God is not formulaic, and sin is never cooperative to let us have the life of our dreams. I have been thinking about my days of cliché speak when times were simple, trouble was minimal, and I felt as though I could take on hell with (laughs) with a water pistol. That's another one of those novice cliches of the person who is yet to have his heart broken by God. The classic passage for this line of thinking is Job chapter 1, verse 21. I'm talking about Job's response to the adverse outcomes that came into his life. Job did not receive what he wanted. That is an insane understatement. But his response to his devastation was astounding and convicting. I want you to listen to his words. But as you listen to his words, I want you to try to place yourself where he was. A man who had just lost his children and his possessions, sitting in the rubble with tears streaming down his dirty face. This is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The first time I read this passage was profound. Let's just say that nothing has changed since those dark days. It is still world-shaking to me today. Job was experiencing a reality that was the farthest thing from what he anticipated when he was making sacrifices to his children in verse number 5. Of course, we know that Job, he did begin to unravel after the initial shock subsided and his allies felt more like enemies. But in this first scene of his story, he surveyed what had happened. And he did what any mature Christian would do. He processed the data, and he began praising God for the good and the bad that came into his life. Job's astounding response to disappointment has never left me. When my life takes sour turns, in most cases, my mind returns to Job's response because it is simultaneously instructional and recalibrating. When I don't get what I expect, I need someone like Job to teach and recalibrate me. And Job always fits the bill. His response was God's healing when the news came about the deaths of my two brothers. I realized there was a precedent for Christians experiencing trauma. 
No trial happen, happening to me makes me different from those saints who went before me. And when I heard the news, the, the, the murders of my brothers were 10 years apart in 1987, 1997. But when I heard the news each time, I went back to my friend Job. Thank God that there, there was a precedent. There, there were people who have gone through horrendous things, and I can learn from them, and I can find that their experience and responses to their trials can be settling for me. Paul's words ring true, follow me as I follow Christ. I want to follow Christ. But following other people who are following Christ is helpful too. And Job is one of those people. And so as I had to process what went on with my brothers, I found Job to be instructional and recalibrating. Job's response was also God's warning. Those times when I'm sitting at a traffic light that has interrupted my life for 2.3 seconds. Job reminds me that I have become spoiled if this is the worst thing happening to me, well, honestly, I am in a great spot. And so Job can be a reminder when the death of a brother, Job can be a reminder when you're held back 2.3 seconds at a traffic light. Job's response has also been God's appeal. When my wife and I are not getting along, sin does not autocorrect, and it can be God's kind admonition to respond to him the right way right now, or things will worsen. Joe's response has been God's hope when I was out of work with no opportunities forthcoming. My role is to seek God's kingdom first, always trusting him, no matter how bleak things look from my ground level view. Even if I lose all things, God will take care of me. Job lost all things, and God took care of him. And so in any sphere of life, whether it's a traffic light or something more devastating, Job reminds me that praising God for the good things that come my way is proper, but only partially fulfilling what it means to be a mature believer. If all I can do is praise God for good outcomes, when I take a shortcut to work, praise God, and I'm not delayed three hours. When I get a check in the mail and, and it's, it answers a prayer request, praise God that God is meeting a need. But if that's the only time I can praise God, then I know that I have laced my praise with self-focused and self-centered expectations. When I cannot muster praise for the difficulties in my life, eventually, please hear that modifier, eventually, I should be, maybe not initially, but eventually, it would be correct to assume that my gratitude for those good things lacks a seasoning that can only come through the fires of God's crucible. Mature Christianity is when a person can see God working through the hardships while not being overcome by those difficulties leading to genuine worship of God for the high privilege of walking in the steps of His dear Son, which is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. For to this we have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might walk in His steps. When I react sinfully to the inconvenient traffic lights of life, it's unnecessary for you to ask me how I am doing. I already know. 
by the words that come from my mouth, like marching billboards revealing my immaturity to anyone within earshot of my disgruntles. At the moment of not getting my way, the response from my heart is the most accurate and objective measurement of my authentic Christian faith. Words act like a spiritual thermometer pointing to my spiritual regeneration or my spiritual degeneration. In those situations, I can act more like a Christian rookie than a seasoned veteran matured in the fires of suffering. Job was not perfect. I've said that many times. But he was also not a Christian rookie. Job was a mature believer. Wouldn't you like to have what Job had? To regularly turn away from evil, choosing God instead? That is a compelling testimony. And that's what we read in Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless. That man was upright. That man is one who feared God and turned away from evil. You and I can get to that place in our walk with God. For starters, we must ensure that we have a proper definition of the word good. A biblical meaning must include a biblical meaning of good must include broad borders that comprehend all things, including those that speak to a solid theology of suffering. Now, I realize this is a counterintuitive way to think about the word good. I mean, we see good as fur babies and ice cream, hours on social media, and a general lack of hardship. If you fill your version of good with human-centered things devoid of suffering and difficulties, then you have an unbiblical definition of the word good. God's good for us is much more than health, wealth, and satisfying relationships. The Bible has another view of how things are in a cursed world, which is a challenge because we struggle with budgeting difficulty and suffering and frustration into our lives. But good and suffering can be synonyms in the Bible. Like the gospel, some Christians do not pull the curtain back far enough to see how the good news became the good news. We see the good news because we only look at the salvation side of the good news. But if you go beyond the curtain of the good news, what you're going to see is a man dying on a cross. Suffering is an unmentionable, not something for good Christian folk to discuss. Like an unwelcome neighbor who just moved into the cul-de-sac, we acknowledge them, but we do not want to know them. Misunderstanding all the elements of the gospel becomes a prescription that can lead to bitterness and unforgiveness and cynicism and even broken relationships. Personal pain is one of the most significant ways to relate to Christ. It most assuredly is one of the most potent ways that he relates to us. You remember Hebrews 4.15, uh, that he was tempted at all points like us. You remember Philippians 2, that he took on man, humanity. He became like us. He wants to relate to us. What about if we reverse the tables and see the benefits and possibilities of suffering? What about if we think about how we relate to him, the sufferer, rather than always thinking about, well, he is a sympathizing Savior. Praise God for that, that he was tempted in all ways like us. But let's turn it around. 
and let's relate to him, that suffering Savior, as we walk in his steps. To miss this point is to miss out on one of, the mo- one of God's essential gifts to us, leading to our best life now. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so with an expanded definition of the word good, that's one thing that we need to, to understand if we're going to understand God when he does not come through for us. We have to have an expanded definition of the word good, but we also must learn how to live in a parallel world to have what Job had. You see, on the ground level where there was nothing but shattered dreams, he was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. As far as the eye could see, there was death and destruction. Darkness had come over the land, and his hopes for a bright future were blown away by the destructive forces of Satan and his minions. But from a sovereignty of God level, he was secure and he was worshipful. You see, Job had a high view of God, which was more controlling of his psyche, his soul, than his difficulties on the ground level. Regardless of the adverse outcomes in his life, his perspective and understanding of the Lord is what kept him stable. We all live in a parallel universe. On the ground, we engage thorns and thistles, the promises from God in Genesis 3.18. You are pricked daily with disappointment. All the paths in your life will scratch you, leaving scars. Joseph understood his thorn and thistle world, but he did not permit it to manage him. He recognized and acknowledged that bad things happen to good people. Still, his greater desire was to please God. Joseph did not sugarcoat his problems, but called them for what they were rather than ignoring the obvious or defending God or reacting sinfully to what the good Lord permitted into his life. Like Job, Joseph did not fixate on the bad things that had happened to him. He kept his sight lines above ground level, not ignoring the problems, but not permitting them to control him. He lived in the parallel. He recognized the evil, but filtered it through God's sovereignty. Joseph firmly believed that God was in his mess. And so no matter how powerful or disappointing his life was unfolding, he knew that nothing would shake him down to the ground to where fear and anger and regret and bitterness were his all-controlling suitors. He could say like what Paul said in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Embracing good suffering from a sovereignty-centered perspective is two of the biggest struggles in the Christian community today. No matter how much we affirm these truths, God is good, God is sovereign. Too many Christians respond sinfully to their disappointments when the rubber hits the road. They have a narrow interpretation of good, and they can only see the problems on the ground level, not the sovereign hand who is writing these troubles into their narratives. Humbly embracing a sound theology of suffering is a vast, life-altering worldview that upfits us for the Master's purposes. Let me put it this way. If we cannot get, it, if we cannot get this right, then our lives will muddle along 
in low-grade disappointments because of our unwillingness to give God space and time to mature us through the crucible of suffering. My aim here is not to be harsh. That's, that's not my desire at all. But like a doctor, the good news that you hope for comes after accepting the bad news that is very real in your life. We see, all, we see this also in Matthew 26, 39, when Jesus was in Gethsemane. It says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, we see the, the good side of the gospel. We get salvation, hope, peace, contentment, worship, heaven, praise God, all tears wiped away. But the gospel embraces much more than the good that we see on the salvation side. The goodness of God on the backside sees someone who is being pressed beyond measure in the Garden of Gethsemane and then getting up and going to a cross. Let me illustrate these ideas by using a case study about disappointment. Disappointment is a general term, and of course that applies to every one of us because every one of us have, we have had disappointment, whether it's the low-level disappointment that happens at a traffic light or something even more significant. But when something bad happens to us, typically the first thing we experience is disappointment. And if we do not engage the bad news while pleading with God to walk us through it, we will never be able to experience the satisfaction on the other side of the crucible. And so a, a sequential set of sins will begin to develop in our minds if we do not have God's perspective and grace empowering us through our disappointments. If we give way to this sin cycle, we will grow into a self-defeated life as the stronghold will metastasize, taking our thoughts captive. If we do not turn to the Lord, we will enter into a progression that can look like the following sequence. And so I just want to lay out a, a sequential sin cycle and I hope that it will be a warning, an admonition. I hope that it will be an appeal. And I hope that you would even find encouragement through it by maybe recognizing yourself and then possibly it's like, I need, I need to get out of this. And so when disappointment comes, many times the first thing that will happen will be something like regret. When regret happens, rather than turning to God when the disappointment comes, we begin to think about woulda, shoulda, coulda, the things that we ought to have done differently to gain a more preferred outcome. And so we spend our time looking backwards again on the ground level, and we're trying to, it's really a self-reliant way to, uh, to maneuver or to will our way through this disappointment that we are experiencing Paul, on the other hand, saw his suffering as a reminder to rely on God, not on himself. Self-reliance takes control of the situation, and the reason that we will lean into self-reliance is because we are unsure that God will give us what we want. And so we experience disappointment, and then we begin to regret. We think through woulda, shoulda, coulda, and then if we're not careful at that juncture, We'll start leaning into self-reliance so that we can, we can will our way through this rather than leaning into God-reliance. Well, what's going to happen next is that bitterness will begin to take root in our hearts because we can't change the disappointment through self-reliant efforts. We'll only complicate our lives. And so if the disappointment stays and we cannot change our circumstance through self-reliant means to gain a more preferred outcome, well, we're going to grow bitter. Bitterness will soon take a root. 
and we may even become distant, critical, numb, fearful, angry. The initial fear of not getting what we wanted will turn to anger, and if we don't uproot the anger, it will morph into bitterness, and it will begin to affect all of our relational spheres. And so when disappointment comes, we experience regret. If we're not careful, we try to maneuver through this in a self-reliant way, it won't work, and so the disappointment is going to maintain, maybe even metastasize. We'll become angry, frustrated, fearful, and then that is where bitterness will start growing in our hearts. Number three will be unforgiveness. Rather than looking to God to figure out what He is up to in our situation, we'll start blaming others for what is wrong with us. The problem's not changing, and we can't own it and say that it was our fault, but we have to place it on someone, and blame alleviates internal turmoil, but only for the short term. And so as we lock lock onto these targets that we want to blame, they become a rationalization for why our life is not the way that we had hoped. And so disappointment comes. The first is regret, and then it can... Uh, the sequence can go into bitterness. And then number three will be unforgiveness as that bitterness begins to metastasize in our hearts and as we start looking at others to blame. And then number four is self-righteousness. Now that only makes sense. You see, you can't blame somebody else for what's wrong with your life without having a greater than, better than attitude toward them, making self-righteousness a constant companion with unforgiveness. You cannot look down on another person and punish them for what is wrong in your life without pretending to be superior to them. And so tied to the unforgiveness of blaming others is a heart of of self-righteousness. And then finally, there will be relational dysfunction, which only makes sense. I mean, you can imagine someone like this just barrels toward relational dysfunction at this point it will be hard for them to see how the problem is more about their relationship with god than with others their relational conflicts will obscure their anger toward god now what they will continue what they will do from this juncture is they'll just continue to make more poor choices that is the sin cycle of this sequence They will make more poor choices that's going to lead to more disappointment, that's going to lead to more uh, bitterness, that's going to lead to more forgiveness and more self-righteousness, more relational dysfunction, that's going to lead to more poor choices. The accumulative effect of the aforementioned responses leads to more poor choices. Now, perhaps a friend will have the courage and the competence to speak into their lives but that will, be a, that will be dicey because this person has become a self-justified, self-righteous victim of what others have done to them, and it's a sin cycle with no off-ramp until maybe they come to the hog lot of life to where they truly come to the end of themselves. The answer, of course, begins with redefining what the word good means, something that approximates what the Bible teaches while readjusting our sight lines to God and His sovereign management over our lives. All things do work to good, work for good, including our disappointments. But sometimes that good will put a man on a cross. Sometimes that good will put a man in a pit like Joseph. Sometimes that good will put a man in a fiery furnace. It could mean that Satan will destroy all he cherishes like Job. At the moment, 
of the disappointment, it will be hard to fixate on God's goodness or His sovereignty because you cannot ignore the devastation at the ground level. I get it. That is a temporary fixation, but as soon as we can, it would be best if we reoriented our sight lines so that we don't fall into the sequence that I've just outlined. I've titled this, When God Does Not Come Through For You. If you would like to read what I've just shared with you, then please go to our coffee shop, lifeovercoffee.com. You can type some version of that title in the search box, and you'll get an article, you'll get a podcast and a video. I would love for you to read it. I'd love for you to share it uh, with a friend. And But this is the final testimony of Job in chapter 1, as I read earlier. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so when the disappointment came into his life, and again, that is an insane understatement, but when the disappointment came into his life, he did not sin. He did not charge God foolishly. He did not step into this sin cycle. Uh, he immediately fixated on God and, and his idea of what good is. We see that it was truly expanded to where he could say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so as you think about my sequential sin cycle, did you see yourself anywhere on that list? Or maybe do you see any other person on that list if you honestly are not on it? Someone that you can serve, someone that you can help. If you do see yourself on that list, I just appeal to you to work through. I'm going to share with you some questions, and I trust it will help you to work through. If your response is not like Job's, it's okay. Mine was nowhere near what Job said. And so just be honest. Perhaps maybe praying through the questions that I'm about to ask you would be an excellent way to begin. Just talk to God and ask Him to help you to be transparent with your answers while pleading for Him to illuminate you with action steps so that you can move out of this debilitating sequence that I just presented to you. And so question number one, I have five. Is your view of God more like the three stories at the beginning that I shared with you? Uh, Mabel, who rerouted to work, and praise God, she didn't get caught in three hours of traffic. Biff, who got the check, praise God, uh, in the mail. Or Bert and Marge, who <clears throat> came back from their honeymoon, and she was floating into the office. And just praise God for the good things that he has done for them. And, and they did. They praised God. And it's not wrong to praise God for those things because those things are good and we, we want to praise God for those good things. But it is a narrow way of thinking about God if we do not see the good He's working through our disappointments. And so the question is, is your view of good more like the three stories at the beginning of this chapter? Number two, how has your definition of good changed by hearing what I've just shared with you? In what ways have you experienced the goodness of God through your trials? It would be great for you to think about a different pathway that he sent you down after bringing disappointment in your life. And you see now that it is good. This is what I was saying earlier. Eventually, you'll come to that place. Rarely does anyone come to that place initially. And so I don't want you to punish yourself. But as you think about the good that he's brought through your life by sending you down a different path, it was disappointing in the moment. But eventually... Like the young man who comes home and tells his parents, said, thank you for the difficulty, the difficult decisions that you made on my behalf because I was too immature to make those decisions myself. Number three, have you trained yourself to become a learner when the disappointments come? 
Now, perhaps you can answer this question by discussing something the Lord taught you through a challenging time. The trial is not the test, but the trial is the context for you to pass the test. And so question number three, have you trained yourself to become a learner, to elevate your sight lines, and to have an expanded understanding of what good could be in your situation? Number four, what is your knee-jerk response to disappointment? Think about the last disappointment in your life. Perhaps it was a low-level traffic situation or not getting a desire met by someone. How did you respond? And then finally, number five, what does your response say about your practical theology? Knowing what God's Word says and practically living it out can be two different things. Knowing what God's Word says is vital, and so is applying it. If we don't apply what we know, we may become arrogant in our ignorance, placing a burden on all those who know us. And so the question is, what does your response to a recent disappointment in your life say about your practical theology? Again, if you want to, fi- uh, if you want to find this, I've titled it, When God Does Not Come Through for You. You can get it on our website at lifeovercoffee.com. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.